Welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And it's so lovely to be back on the podcast. I've had something of a sabbatical away from recording with you, Simon, and I have missed it terribly. I apologise for being away, but there's been other stuff going on, busy, busy and all of that stuff. But you have been holding the fort jolly well from the last few months. And I have to thank you for doing that. Oh, thanks very much. I know you've been busy. What, what exactly have you been up to? Well, I know, but why don't you tell the listeners? Well, bits and pieces, I would say. So uh, some of it is local stuff in Southampton, and I've been made specialty tutor or college tutor. So I've been organising our mock FR chem exam. And it's surprising how much work that takes to write an SAQ paper, design some OSCEs, and then do all of that business. Anyway, it is done. And then just to be on the other side of the fence, I decided to sit the Diploma of Immediate Care this month. As I've been doing pre-hospital care for a bit now, I was one of those who sort of came into it as a kind of already done some training, but not an official femme person. And I wasn't one of those guys who did basics out of the back of a Ford Fiesta. So I felt I should just try and do it just as a means to forcing myself to learn some stuff. And I did actually, well, the day was tricky, but I really enjoyed it. It's a good exam. Yeah, we did a blog post or I did a blog post a while back about what it's like as a senior doctor to go back and having to do exams again and having to learn something new. And it's it's really challenging, actually. But I think it's really important because it puts you back into that mindset of what it's like for our trainees coming through. And so to have that insight, I think, is important because you know what it is. It's an exam before you do it and then you pass it and you go, oh, it's just a little test. And it's not. You know, Passing any of these professional exams is a really hard thing to do. Well, the last time I did an exam was my fellowship exam in, I think, 2007. And I've not had to sit down and work in that way for that since then, for a whole decade. And I really did go back to med school, A-level type revision. I wrote notes. I wrote reminder cards. I did practice with my children. My boys can put a Kendrick traction device in on in under two minutes. And it was really good for me to get back into that. There is something about that desire to have not that I'm anywhere near it, but to work towards mastery. Scott Weingart often talked about it, but the idea that you can just be at the top of your game. And I wouldn't say that I'm all there, but it's really helped me. And going to my shifts now at the air ambulance, I feel a lot more capable than perhaps I did before. I know where the kit is. I know how to use it. I've learned some stuff that was, you know, frankly, interesting. So I know rules about blue light driving now that I never knew before. I know more about major incidents. I know more about even things like altitude and diving and drowning, things that perhaps without the exam to force me, I never would have learned. And I actually quite enjoyed it. And the college run it really well. It's the Faculty of of Pre-Hospital Care up in Edinburgh. You go up and you do what they call an OSPI, which I would have called an OSCE, which is a stations, 14 stations. And you work through those just as you would do for the fellowship or membership exams. And you also do a best of five, uh, single best answer, multi-choice. Now that is 180 questions in three hours. Now for a boy like me with an attention span of a peanut, that is quite hard to sit and concentrate for three hours. And there is a lot of stuff in there. It covers loads of things. But with some revision, with some practice for the OSCEs, I think you can put yourself in a relatively good position. Now, I don't know if I've passed or not, but I do know that it was worth doing whatever the result. We'll find out next month, won't we? We will, although you may not find out depending on what happens. <laughs> okay, bottom line is it's really good to keep your knowledge um, up to speed and actually going into a course or doing some postgraduate stuff, no matter how old you are, um, is a real positive. Come, so well done on that. Well, thank you. We'll see, but thank you. 
Okay, so we need to get into what we were up to in January, I think. So uh, January is a really busy month on the blog. There's there's loads of stuff that we put out, largely because of the conference that I went to, Critical Care Reviews up in Belfast. Now, we will come to Critical Care Reviews in a bit, but you are right. The blog has been incredibly busy and to get through it all is going to be tricky. So we will have to skirt through some things. But I would encourage people just go and have a look when you've got a few minutes. There's a lot of great stuff on that. And also from some writers, authors that you may not have read before, which is really important to us at St. Emily's to spread the work and spread the voices that you're hearing. So we started off with some of these things about the decade in review. And that was a lovely idea. And there's still some more to come, I think, about the things that have changed over the last 10 years. There's some highlights in there, I think. Which bits did you enjoy the most from those, Simon? So I think the the one from Rusty Carroll talking about the rise of the ACP, I think speaks to a wider reality, which is that the the workforce in emergency departments is changing, well, actually in healthcare is changing enormously. And so the traditional model of doctors and nurses is now gone in the UK. And the, the rise of the ACP, which I think if you go right back, was thinking about getting people to do parts of jobs, but still thinking of these uh, sort of new professionals or more highly trained nurses and paramedics as doing a bit of the doctor's job. And I think what we're seeing with the rise of the ACP is the development of people who are have a career and a functionality in their own right. They're not just sort of filling in the gaps, they're actually adding to the workforce. And I think looking forward, that's clearly going to be the, the direction of travel. All the stuff with the GMC that's going on at the moment about, you know, what is a doctor? I mean, the doctors will be of the future. We think what we're working towards is creating the kind of clinician who can operate out with guidelines, out with the standard way of looking at any particular clinical problem. And the idea was that the ACPs will be doing the stuff which is very easy. I don't think that's happened. And, and that's not my reality of working with ACPs now, many of whom are extremely skilled. Well, I've moved away from talking about doctors and ACPs and EMPs and what I just clinicians is the word that I think works relatively well. We all work together. I like to think that some of the prejudice of maybe five or 10 years ago is going away. We've got credentialing now. Our ACPs are doing a huge amount of work to really get themselves up to the standard that they need to be to operate at the level we're asking of them. And I can see it only as a benefit. They bring great different skills to the department. I don't have a good feel for the number of people going through credentialing with the Arkem. And I think Arkem is also noted as one of the, the first colleges. In fact, I think it might be the first college to accept ACPs as members. But I think that is something which we would should encourage, actually. Definitely. And we also talked about, we obviously have Rick, one of the world leaders on uh, Troponin, and he mentioned some stuff about di- diagnostics. He's now, I think now he's, he's, he's nailed Troponin, hasn't he? Let's be honest. He's got it done. So he's looking at other stuff, always looking ahead, clever man, and talking about what we can do with diagnostics in the future. Yeah, so the diagnostics in the past, uh, we've seen the use of increasingly the use of things like risk scoring and a more Bayesian approach to uh, clinical decision making. So you, know, you interpret the test based on what your probability score was before and you know, all the well scores and things like that that we now use. So that's been a real change over the last decade. But looking forward, and I kind of enough insight into what Rick's up to at the moment, I think the use of technology coming into diagnostics is really going to have an impact. So we're already seeing machine learning and AI enhanced diagnostics. That's what TMAX, and you've probably heard about TMAX, the scoring system that we run here in Manchester, has really started to do. And also with that, looking at how you can take the probability scores from a population, but then also make it really precise into individual patients. And then also think about how risk changes. So the risk of you walking into an emergency department with a headache 
of it being horrible is 10%. But as soon as you start asking questions or as soon as you start getting results back, that probability changes. And it actually, if you think about the patient's journey, it dynamically changes almost minute by minute. At the moment, we can't track that and we can't follow it, but we will soon have the tools to do that with point of care testing, with wearable um, tech, with all of the kind of things which are going to impact us, integration of things like Alexa and Google and all of those things. It's, it's really exciting. And I don't think we'll recognise diagnostics in 10 years' time like we do now. The Bayesian thinking, you and I have been big fans of for a long time. I do try and encourage people to think in that way, but to remember that history and examination are diagnostic tests as well. We mustn't forget that. And that will always be part of it. Don't think that we're going to plug this all into a computer and you and I will be looking for other jobs. I don't think that's going to happen in the future. You then, Simon, together with the team, put together the Journal Club book. Now, you've done a few of these and credit where credit's due. You lead on putting these things together. We've got a couple now, but the Journal Club book for 19 and 20 was all the stuff put together in one place so people can look at all of the critical appraisals that have happened on the blog over the last year. Just remind people how can that they can find that. So you can get it either from the website. If you just go follow the St. Emlyn's blog, have a look on there. It's got the links both to iBookstore, so you can download it if you're on a Mac device, or there's a PDF available on the ResearchGate site. Um, you can download that, and most readers, most e-readers will allow you to have a look at that. The one that works better is on iBooks because the links are a little bit more robust and some of the graphics work better. But yeah, no, it's there. And we've got the one from last year up on there as well. So the idea is that, you, oh, do you know that thing where you've read a paper and you oh, I can just remember I read something about that? This is an easy reference to go back. And what I want people to do is I want them to use that in the journal clubs and to send it out to people in the department and say, look, these are big things that have happened in the last year of research. Do you not think you should have a quick look at it so that we as, a, as an organization, as a department, as a clinical team can think about whether we, it's time for us to change our practice? Because there are quite a few things in there which I think are practice changing. And that's a heck of a publication. I mean, the amount of work that's gone in, it, it must cost people a lot to download that, right? So, I mean, it, it must be a good few quid to download, right? Absolutely free, as always. Oh, yeah. So they're all completely free and very, very happy for them to be shared as widely as possible. You really are a giver. Let's move on to critical care reviews. This is the conference in Belfast. Now, at first sight, you might think this is an intensive care conference, and I suppose in a way it is, but it's getting a bigger and bigger profile every year. And this year, there were some properly big trials presented over in Belfast under Rob McSweeney's uh, chairmanship. You were there, Simon. There was some controversy. There was some discussion. Can you give us a flavour of what was talked about and perhaps those big trials that were talked about, the highlights that you took from it? Okay, so the, the, the pitch, and I would recommend anybody goes to this um, conference because it's really good fun and very, very well presented, is they look at the trials. Now, they look at several trials over two days. It's going to be three days next year. And you, you look at the program and you think, oh my gosh, they're actually only going to tackle maybe six or seven topics over two days. And you think, well, what am I going to get out of that? I could go to another conference and, and see 57 different presentations. But the way it's done is that the authors will present their paper. Then, then there'll be a live editorial. So they'll get somebody in to sort of critique the paper then, there and then. And then they'll have a discussion about it amongst a whole group of people, including statisticians. Now, it's not often we say this, but the statisticians were amazing. Well, all statisticians are amazing, but they were incredibly entertaining. And that combination was fantastic. And yes, it did lead to some interesting controversies. Do you want to hear about the, the big papers? Yeah, go on. Okay, so the first one up was um, 65 trial, and that was a trial in critical care septic patients 
And it was to look at what the target MAP, mean arterial pressure, should be in septic patients aged over 65. And the bottom line was it didn't make a lot of difference. So the primary outcome in terms of mortality was 41% in the intervention group, TVN65, or 43.8% in the other group. So really didn't make a lot of difference. And there was pretty much not a lot in the secondary outcomes either. So on the basis of that, we thought, well, probably not that much to change. The only caveat is, and this is a big theme throughout the whole thing, is that there is potentially a signal there. There is a potentially a benefit, but this trial was too small to suggest it um, was proven. So what do you do when you've got two results which on statistical evidence don't show any difference, but probably leans towards the, the lower level, 65? I think most people in the room would say, we're going to shoot for 65 in future. The whole Bayesian analysis stuff was, it sounds boring, but actually it was really interesting. So basically, they found a result, and it doesn't quite achieve statistical significance, but you can work out the probability of how likely it would be that the result was disadvantaged to going for the lower level, and that's incredibly unlikely. So yeah, it was, it was a real, real interesting thing. Anyway, but yeah, whatever. Over the age of 65, shoot for 65, uh, mean arterial pressure. Excellent. So that was day one, I think, wasn't it? The first big paper. Then it was a lot of sepsis, wasn't it? There was a lot of sepsis, yeah. I'll, I'll leave the vitamins trial to the end because I'm going to tell you about that in some more detail. I'll tell you very quickly. The other um, trial which I wanted to mention was the peptic study. This was in ICU patients comparing PPIs, so things like omeprazole versus um, H2RBs, so things like rinitidine, that kind of stuff. And this was a massive trial. So it was really interesting that it was like 24,000 odd patients. It didn't show a difference between the two. But again, there's potentially a signal that the omeprazole might be worse than the H2RBs. So again, there's a feeling that probably people will go to the H2RBs rather than the PPIs. Although again, depends on how you interpret the studies. Really interesting, really interesting, worth a look. But the big one, the big one getting to it was the vitamins trial. So this came out of Paul Marek's work, which was to use the so-called Marek cocktail or Marek protocol. And in septic patients, the claim that if you gave them hydrocortisone, vitamin C and thiamine, they just didn't die. And the claims were that big. So they were saying that people, if you give this therapy to patients in the ED and in the ICU, they do not die of sepsis, which is a hell of a claim. Yes. I mean, that really is a claim, isn't it? A bit more of bit more enthusiastic than that. So go on, vitamins. If I take some vitamin tablets, I'll be better. Well, not tablets, but, you know, IVs, these people are sick. But yeah, the idea was that you, it, it, you, this was a cure for sepsis and it was it was put out as that. Anyway, randomised controlled trial um, presented with Marek in the room, which was a fascinating thing, uh, comparing doing the, the cocktail versus just giving them hydrocortisone, because we know from other trials that hydrocortisone works. Uh, the bottom line is it, it showed no benefit at all. Now, that's fine, but you remember we had the editorial after the... So the trials presented, then we had the editorial. The editorial was done by Paul Marek. It was difficult to watch. He was really angry, and he was very dismissive of the trial and its design and the presentation. It was a really painful thing to watch, actually. So I think it's still available online if you want to, to look at it. The bizarre thing was, he actually had some really interesting points to make to say that this trial may not have answered the question about whether the cocktail works or not. But it was presented in a very aggressive way. And I thought I found that quite difficult to watch. And then the discussion afterwards was was like a very, very difficult family meeting. It does sound a bit tricky, frankly. But then is this a risk we have of having people in the audience whose work is really being challenged? Perhaps people who don't quite know how to react to that. Not everyone can take that on the chin as well. We've always said people love feedback. And I always say, well, they like good feedback. 
what he's really having there is his life's work is being, uh, well, his recent life's work is being binned. And that must be quite hard to take. And if you're a little bit tired and a bit jet lagged and and what, I'm not trying to excuse his behavior because I have watched part of it. I had to turn it off. Um, but uh, it was, it looked to me like the trial investigator, the PI who was presenting the paper handled it brilliantly. And actually some good did come out of it in the end. What is interesting is, it, is the trial itself is fascinating. There are more trials coming out on the use of vitamin C, thiamine and hydrocortisone in sepsis because it's quite a few trials running around the world. So for the moment, there's no evidence really, in my opinion, that it's the right thing to do. But let's uh, watch this space and see what the other trials come out. Because as I said, you know, Marek did raise some concerns about the methodology in this one, which he would argue was not testing what he does in practice. So there you go. So then there was a, you did a quick, you sent it out to us. I'm just doing a quick journal club. Uh, We're going to do a quick paper about long lines in ultrasound guided peripheral IVs. You did it. We checked it. We all thought it was jolly good. You put it out and then Twitter did its thing and Twitter went nuts. (laughs) What happened? Twitter went absolutely mental. I don't know why, Um, because everybody has a view on these sort of things. So as a trial, the trial itself was looking at uh, the use of uh, long lines in ultrasound access. So does the length of the cannula make a difference in terms of how long the, the the line works for? And unsurprisingly, it does. You're much better with a longer line. So basically, if you're doing this, you're doing ultrasound lines commonly um, in the upper arm and you're using a normal sized uh, cannula like a Venflon, then it's going to fall out quite a lot. You want one of the longer versions, which actually here in, in, in Manchester, we don't have. So as part of a business case now is to get these. But what <laughs> made Twitter go mad was that somebody suggested that they use an arterial line and a Seldinger technique. And then you put the arterial line into the vein and you label it appropriately. And at face value, I don't think that's a horrific thing to suggest. I genuinely don't. I don't think it's a crazy thing to suggest. You might be in the research room and it might be the only option available to it for you for whatever reason. And I think that people suggested it in good faith. Unfortunately, several people took great offence at this suggestion. And and it all got a bit sort of accusing people of patient safety risks and being dangerous practitioners. You know, never a good thing to do, I think, in the social media world. Conclusion is, I don't think we should be using arterial lines. You should be using, you know, the proper sort of kit and you should get it. If you don't have use of those, well, maybe you could use a, a big line that's slightly longer. But actually, this is a good reason to get a business case out there and get some longer lines into your department, should you wish. Did you also suggest that those people doing these lines should definitely cycle to work whilst wearing a bicycle helmet? And when in the recess room, the emergency physician can do the RSI, because then I think you would have achieved Twitter gold. That would have been it. It would have imploded on itself. I don't know. You probably need to get a bit of ketamine and rocky rhenium in there as well. Oh, I'm a um, sucks yeah, guy. I'm a sucks guy. What can I say? Honestly, yeah. Twitter, it is a force yeah. for good at times, um, but it can also be a crazy force for misunderstanding and other stuff. And I think that's what it was. I think it was a misunderstanding. I spoke to quite a few of the people involved offline and everybody was there in good faith. Nobody's trying to be upsetting to anybody, but they all had really good points to make. I think the conclusion is, you know, it's not a great idea, but I can see a circumstance why why people, well, I can exactly see why people suggested it. Uh, yeah. And let's move on. Let's move on. Let's, let's not go back there. No. It was horrible. Um, now, everybody's favorite Texan, Ashley, very helpfully put together a post about the big news of the day, the coronavirus. So that is there for people to read or Although the advice seems to be changing on a daily basis, depending where you visited, what needs to happen. It is causing a degree of chaos in our UK emergency departments, as I'm sure it is across the world. Hopefully, we will manage to keep this in the containment phase and it will not go to the pandemic phase. And this will burn itself out. But we need to be vigilant and do our bit. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, if you if your advice is only changing on a daily basis, you're lucky. Ours seems to change hourly on occasions, and I think that's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? We, we're finding stuff out about this um, as time goes by. As I see it today, and this will this will be different by tonight, I'm sure. We have some procedures in place, but there is a significant concern around capacity to see patients who might be infective to staff. So we have things like negative pressure rooms. Many departments don't have them. Um, we need to be trained up and re- well, we're already trained, but we need to revise how we're donning and doffing the kit. We're still not quite sure about the diagnostics or when the infectivity period is. Or that other thing which I discovered, you come across this R0 number. Did you see that in the post? No. So the R0 number, if I got this right, please excuse me if I got it wrong, is for any disease, how many people you'd be expected to infect if you got it, you know. So how many people do you go around and infect? So things like measles, very infective, 17 or 18. The numbers for the coronavirus I've seen knocking around are around about two or more. And that means it would essentially be self-sustaining. So if it's self-sustaining and it's infective before you become symptomatic, and again, we don't know that yet for sure, although some people suspect it, you know, we could be in for a, we could be in for a, a fairly rough ride, but yeah, changing day by day. It's, a, it's an exciting time. It's interesting, but it's a lot of work. And we're all getting that crazy phrase, fit mask tested. Is that what you call it in Manchester? I have no idea why we put those three words in that order, but we all have to get fit mask tested. And I'm currently doing my very best to grow a beard. I have never had a beard in my life because apparently a beard gets you out of all of this and you can stay out of that kit. I know that's not true, Ian. You're not growing a beard to get out of it. But because actually what's happening across the world is some people are actually shaving their beards off so that they can be fit tested and join the rest of us, Ian, and not try and get out of it. To be honest, I, I, I barely, I can barely get stubble. So I'm in for this. I'm all in. There is other more local excitement happening, Simon. Uh, for whatever reason, in the last week, it appears that St Emlyn's Live is returning. Tell us a bit about that. So quite excited about that. We've had lots of people get in touch with us saying, you know, when is the next one going to be? We did the first one back in the end of 2018, I think, up here in Manchester. So we're going to run it again on May the 12th. Bit of a difference this year in terms of how we're going to run it. There's a lot more interaction planned and we're going to build on the marketplace um, idea, which ran really well last time. If you're not familiar with the marketplace idea, it's a bit like choose your own adventure when you come to a conference. So you have the options of going around relatively small units and actually getting one-to-one or, or small group-to-one education with people. And you can spend as much time or as little time as you like in those areas. So that's that works out really, really well. I've got some really interesting ideas about how we're going to run that. Got some really interesting people coming along. So first one, I'm pretty certain, 99.9% certain, in fact, 100% certain, Cliff Reed will be joining us. So he'll be one of our keynotes. And uh, many people will know Cliff Reed and want to meet him here in Manchester. Very excited about that. And then the day after, we're going to run a resuscitology course here in Manchester as well. So very, very shortly on the blog, we'll have the links for how you can get your name down for resuscitology and St. Emelins. If you want to put your name on the waiting list and get first dibs on tickets, email me at stemlins at gmail.com and I will put you on that list. Very exciting. A lot of work. I remember that the last one almost caused you some sort of mental breakdown, but you got through it well. And we delivered a a good conference all down to you. So I'm going to have to say your energy is envious of, to say the least. One final thing, perhaps, before we go, a a sad note, but just to say we're thinking of our great friend Ken Milne at this time. He very sadly lost his brother 
earlier this week. He posted it on Twitter. This is not private news. Ken is one of the kindest people I have ever met. And he's a long way away over in Canada. But Ken, just from our little FOMED little group across the podcast cohort, we'd just like to wish you all the best. Tell We're thinking of you and your family at what must be a horrific time. And strength from you uh, to you across the pond. And we'll look forward to seeing you back soon, as soon as you're ready. Simon, it's been an absolute joy to be back on the podcast with you. I apologize again for my absence. I'll try to make sure that I'm not absent for quite so long. Uh, Thanks to a couple of things, I've now uh, reduced my job plan. I'm very grateful to the pension arrangements that have allowed me to drop two PAs. It's amazing how much time that can make. It's lovely. Uh, Although I no longer have any money to spend, but that's okay. So it's all good and we will see you back. I'll chat with you again soon, Simon, I would hope. Excellent. Uh, It's been great. It's always better. It's always better when you're here, Ian. It's always better together, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. 100%. Take care. All right. Bye now. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the block and the podcast have grown and now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time.